Well, I dare say this is my favorite weekend of the year to preach from the Word, and I hope it's your favorite weekend to be listening, because if that's the case, we might have a jolly good time right here in God's Word, and I pray that He speaks to us. I really stand here with one goal in mind, and that is that I, I want everybody to leave here knowing the story of Jesus and knowing how His story can and will transform your story and how the resurrection makes that possible. Okay, so that's the goal. We'll see how we do. We all are living stories, though, aren't we? We all are living a story. We're all living a a biography. You can think about your life, and it has uh, twists and turns and bends in the road that has brought you to the place of who you are today and right here uh, in this room today. I myself am living uh, a story, my own story. And if I was to summarize uh, my life story, I think I could do it fairly in four words, okay? Home, call, ministry, marriage. Home would be for me, roughly 18 years living in Iowa. I grew up in the great state of Iowa. And uh, all that being a boy and growing up in that in that home and, and in that community meant fond memories there. Call would be my second word, and that would describe like my my spiritual life and God's call in my life to salvation, but also uh, the call to um, be a pastor and and all of that. So that leads then to the third word for me, which is ministry. And it's been a joy to be a pastor now for 20 years, and uh, that's an ongoing word in my, in my story. Uh, the fourth word is actually a new word for me, marriage. I got married after, after 19 years of being the bachelor pastor. I got married this last August, and so that's a new word uh, to Jennifer, who's right here in the second row, and uh, you could applaud for Jennifer. Go ahead. She's in the second row. Oh. And uh, my next word is, I, I have a new word I'm, I'm getting in June, and that is dad. So we're excited about that as well. Indeed. So there's, there's, there's my story in, in four or five words. I wonder if you had an opportunity, if you could describe your story broadly like that uh, in just a, a handful of words what might your words be? What would you pick to describe the story of, of your life? I would imagine that uh, many of us would have words that would be happy words. They are words that describe joys in our life, and we would, we would happily say those words. We probably have words, uh, some of us, that are painful words, right? Words about seasons in our life that were defining, but in a very hard way. We're all living a story. We all have our own biography. And I want to show how the intersection of the story of Jesus with your story will change your life in ways that God wired you and made you to want that transformation. Now to do this, I want to tell you the story of Jesus in five words. Okay. The story of Jesus in five words. 
And I kind of am doing it, but really it's the Apostle Paul that's doing it because I'm just going to relate what he says in Philippians 2 as he gives a very short and succinct description of who Christ was and, and what he did. The story of Jesus in five words. And chapter 2 is broadly is a chapter in this letter where Paul is exhorting these uh, Christians at the city of Philippi, at the church at Philippi, to get along. They weren't getting along. They were, they were fighting. There was discord. They weren't serving one another. And he says, hey, listen, we're Christians, right? We follow Jesus. Let his attitude be your attitude as well. And then he writes what many scholars think is a first century praise song. There's a, there's a kind of lyrical quality to it. It likely was a song or at least a poem, a creed, that Christians would have recited because it says the basic essence of who, of who Jesus was. Kind of like the one day song we just got done singing where uh, it walks through kind of what he did one day, uh, when sin was dark as could be, Jesus came forth and all the rest. And that's basically what Paul does here is a very short, succinct statement of who Christ was and what he did. We begin in verse five. Here's what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and we'll stop right there, because here we have the first word of the story of Jesus, and it is exalted, exalted. The story of Jesus begins in eternity past, so we go back in the timeline we go back before the creation of the world and the universe. We go back before the creation of, of uh, the angelic host. All the way back to where all there was was God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We find at the beginning of the story, way back, that all there was was God. Now we look at that and we say, well, that sounds kind of boring. There was, there was nothing to do, and they must have been lonely, and all the rest. No, not at all. Within the Trinity, within the Godhead, we find that there are there is one God, but there are three persons within that Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, who we call Jesus, and God the Spirit. And within that triune relationship, there was all the things that we love about relationships ourselves. And so, think of what you love about relationships, the, the good ones, <laughs> not the bad ones, the good ones. We love, uh, we love to talk, and within the Trinity, they communicated with one another. Uh, we love to, we love to uh, serve one another, and they served one another. We delight in one another, and within the Trinity, they delighted in one another. We know, for example, when Jesus was baptized, the Father thunders from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so, the picture of the Trinity in eternity past is nothing boring. There is gladness. There is joy. There is fullness. They are not lacking for anything. There is no weakness. There is no hunger. There is no, there's no loneliness. There is nothing lacking. It's perfect. Absolute perfection. No needs whatsoever. Think of the greatest moment in your entire life. The happiest, most thrilling moment that you've ever had in your whole life. Every moment Jesus had in eternity past was far greater than our greatest moment. He was happy. He was good. He was exalted. All glory and honor was his. The angelic host singing out his praises. 
declaring his holiness, his power, his might. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that was the experience of Jesus in eternity past. Exaltation. That's the first word. You with me? Okay. Here's the second word. Humbled. Humbled. The verse goes on. It says this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. The first word talks about the exaltation, the glory, the honor that was his, the perfection of his experience. The second word describes the story of what took place, where in eternity past, at some point, God the Father communicates to the Son his will and purpose to create the universe and to create the earth and to create people that are made in his image with moral capacities and moral responsibilities who would sin against him and would necessitate the sending of the second person, Jesus, to earth and for him to come and do all the things that he did to redeem and to save mankind. God the Father communicates to the Son, this is my purpose and this is my will. The Son, Jesus, Here's this purpose and will, and what Paul says is that he did not consider the rights and the privileges that were his as the Son of God as things that he had to cling to, that he would not be willing to relinquish. Why? Because there was something more important than his rights and his privileges, namely the will of the Father. And so what Paul highlights is that the Son willingly sets aside those rights and privileges and humbles himself by coming and becoming flesh, human. He says here, made in the likeness of men, born in the likeness of men. This was for Jesus humility. Now to us, it doesn't look like it's that humble uh, from, because we did not, we've never seen him in his exalted state. And uh, to be a human being seems quite normal to us, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, we sort of like it. We are, you know, above, we're higher, we're the highest on the food chain. Uh, we, I'm, glad I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm human. I, I wouldn't want to be a salamander. I wouldn't want to be a polywog. I wouldn't want to be a lot of things that I look around and see. I'm glad to be, to be human. So we look at it and it seems normal to us, doesn't it? We're human beings. That's right. But you've got to realize where he was and why that then would be such a massive step down for him simply to take on human flesh. All we've ever known is this world, this frailty that we have. So we get hungry and we eat and we get thirsty and we drink and we get tired and so we sleep and we get sick and we we have all of these weaknesses that we deal with which seem normal to us but Christ had never had one moment of anything but absolute power and glory so for him to come and to cloak that glory that effulgent glory that just burst from him in heaven 
for that to be cloaked in a human body and for that power, amazing power that Christ had, for that to be subdued into a human being was a massive, it was a massive humiliation for Jesus. And that's just the physical part of becoming human. And that's not even the part that we mind the most. The really hard part about being human is that you have to live with other human beings. And we live in this broken world of human beings where people do and say horrible things to one another and treat one another in truly despicable ways. And this is the largest part of what it makes, what's painful about being human. And Jesus entered into this world of conflict and strife so that, for example, all that we've ever known is Mr. A saying something derogatory to Mr. B and Mrs. C gossiping about Mrs. D and E and F murdering G and Mr. H breaking up Mrs. I and Mr. J's marriage. And Mr. K losing his job while his wife L and daughters M and N cry at home. And Dr. O going to Reverend P to confess his sins while Q, R, and S plot to take him down. T-H-U, V is jealous of W. And everyone's worrying about what X, Y, and Z are up to. I had fun writing that. (laughs) But is that not a description of... The world that we live in, where people are all the time doing this and that, one up in, and the pride and the arrogance and the selfishness that we deal with and contribute to, amen? Oh, that was really soft. (laughs) I've got work to do to convince you of that. But Jesus entered into this, and why was that humiliation? He is God. The testimony of the Bible over and over again is that Jesus is God. His rightful place is exaltation, not humiliation, and certainly not being around people like us and dealing with the the mess of this world. Would you call that humiliation? I would. And if he willingly did that, would that not say something very profound about him? Indeed, it would. And Paul emphasizes that he humbled himself. Now, many of us get humbled, but it's because life humbles us. He humbled himself. And why would he do that? Why would he, as the NIV translates this, make himself nothing? And the answer is love, which I'll get to in a moment. So we're telling the story of Jesus. Five words. First words, exalted. Second word, humbled. Here's the third word, crucified, crucified. Verse seven, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we see how willingly, how low Christ was willing to go. You know, leaving exaltation, that's one thing. Taking on human flesh and and weakness and being tired and sick and all the rest, that's another thing. But to die is a whole nother level, isn't it? Jesus willingly died. And he did this by allowing 
people to murder him. Let's think through the story a second. Let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. That night that he's betrayed, Thursday night, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying. Peter, James, and John are nearby, the other disciples a stone throw away. He's praying, and the, and the text says he is realizing fully the agony that he is about to experience, and in that moment he prays with such fervor, sweat pouring off of his face, He goes to his disciples for encouragement. They're sleeping. He says, can't you just stay awake and pray? He goes back. He prays some more. He goes back to his disciples. They're sleeping again. And he says, wake up, for my betrayer is at hand. And and here comes down the hillside Roman soldiers with clubs and spears and all the rest. Jewish leaders led by... Judas, his own disciple, who leads the band down and they and Judas kisses him on the cheek to identify him as Jesus. The soldiers rush towards Jesus to arrest him. Peter wants to take matters into his own hands. It didn't go so good. Uh, but they grab Jesus. And the text tells us that now begins an amazing series of physical agony. As those Roman soldiers beat him. Who are they beating? They are beating God. They spit upon him. So much so, imagine the spittle of men going down the face of Jesus. Men that he made for his own glory, spitting on his face. And then they beat him some more. And they beat him with a rod. And then they flogged him, which itself was a hideous torture. And then they made him carry his cross all the way to Calvary's hill. And then they nailed him to the cross. Now, what is most remarkable about this is who they did this to. Because remember, we're not talking about Spartacus, or some other guy. We're talking about the Son of God, who, as he allowed them to beat him, was with every blow the infinitely glorious Son of God, for whom all power was his. If for one moment he would have thought to himself, no, no, those soldiers, boom, gone. All of Jerusalem could have gone. This whole universe could have just gone. That is the power of the Son of God. Did those soldiers have any idea as they came and they grabbed him and said, Oh, yeah! Did they have any idea the power of the one they were holding to? Imagine, this is the one who, in Genesis 1, he speaks. There is nothing. He speaks. And this universe comes into existence. And the thing of the power in this universe, the sun, or even one atom, one atom split, the explosion of that, the po- where does that power come from? It comes from the one that these soldiers said, you're mine now. And what I want you to realize is that as they led him away, and as they beat him, and as they interrogated him and spit upon him and 
flogged him and crucified him. He let them do it. He let them do it. Could have at any moment simply said something and it would have happened. And he would have been free. You call that humbled? Willingly humbling himself and allowing this to be done to him. That is the humiliation, the humility of our Lord. How low did Jesus go? That that sounds pretty low right there, doesn't it? Well, Paul emphasizes, not only did he become obedient to the point of death, he adds a little clause, even death on a cross. Let's talk about a cross a second. You know, we talk about cross, we sing about the cross, people wear the cross around their neck, have it up in their house and all the rest. Probably the reason that we feel so comfortable talking about uh, crosses is that we've never seen anybody die on one. If any of us ever saw an actual human being writhing like a snake on a piece of wood to survive, we would have an entirely different perspective about a cross, wouldn't we? Yes, indeed, the Roman cross. The word cross was so profane in first century Roman culture that it was not polite to even bring it up. And the reason for that is that most people had seen people die on a cross. And it was so disgusting and so profane you wouldn't, even, you wouldn't bring it up. People are like, oh, the cross, don't even say that. I, didn't want, I don't even want to think about it. It's so horrible. The experience on a cross is hard to imagine. First of all, you hang there naked. You hang there, the first thing they do is they take all your clothes off, and then they crucify you. Now right there, we're on something I think we can relate to, can't we? We, there's this, there's this, because to die on a cross essentially is this, it's the removal of all human dignity, the slow, gradual death and the removal of all human dignity. So it begins with, it begins with nakedness. Okay. And we can relate to that. We understand uh, there's a certain dignity and honor that we give to others and they give to us by clothing ourselves. And we feel a certain awkwardness about nakedness. I remember some years ago, I had a little test done at St. Anthony's Hospital. And so I went in for the test and they said, you'll have to put one of these on. And you know that feeling, don't you? When they say you've got to put the little gown on at the hospital, you know, because it's, they're so, it's like, put this on, would you please? You know, (laughs) that doesn't cover anything. So I put the gown on and I was in the waiting room waiting to be called into the little test area and they called me in and I went walking into the test area and the technician had her back to me because she was at the desk and she turned it around and she goes, Pastor Steve. (laughs) Yeah. You all can relate to the moment apparently. But that's very human, isn't it? We understand, we understand that dignity that we feel and the safety we feel when we're clothed. The Romans wanted to humiliate the crucified, and so they had to take the clothes off. So none of the paintings you've ever seen are accurate, and I'm glad for that, okay? Next, what they would do is they would... 
of course, nail you to a tree, tree, a cross, through the wrist, through the ankles, and would hoist you into, into place, hoist the crucified individual into place. And now, basically, with the weight of the body hanging on these nails, it really becomes a struggle to breathe. Many people think you bled to death or something. No, it was a struggle uh, to, to breathe, so that maybe the closest thing you can think about being crucified would be if you've ever been like at the pool and you've been playing with friends or something and some friend grabs you and you didn't have a breath, you know, and you went under and you needed to go up and that sense where you can't breathe and you just, you know, you struggle in the water like anything to get up and to get that breath, that little sense of terror. On the cross, as they hung there, the weight would care, would, uh, at first it's okay because the muscles could hold you in place, but then slowly, as they, as they weaken, you, would, you wouldn't be able to take a breath because you get, you get like this, you can't breathe. And so they would lift up off of those nails in order to take a breath. And the crucifixion was basically a sliding up and down on that cross, struggling to get a breath only to exhaust again uh, in weakness. At some point along the way, you lose your control of bodily functions. I haven't seen that in any paintings that I've seen. But you see a humiliation there, don't you? Heaving, gasping, all of this done in full view of your loved ones and your enemies. And there Christ is, hanging on that cross. The Pharisees are there, and we know from the text that they're mocking him. You said you were the Son of God. Get down, let's see you do it now, miracle boy. The Roman soldiers also were mocking him. Everyone's laughing. How low did Jesus go? Well, he died one of the most gruesome kinds of deaths that anybody has ever come up with. Now, here's the thing you've got to realize. Everything that I've just told you about crucifixion were the least of Jesus' concerns. The real agony on the cross was not physical, as bad as that would have been. And here is where Jesus went and descended into an agony that no other human being has ever or could ever experience. And it has to do with what happened at noon. The text tells us that the sky grew black. And the Bible describes what God the Father did at noon with a power that only, only the final judge can do. He takes... The guilt and the shame for sin, and not just sin generally, but my sin, Steve DeWitt's sin, the guilt of all the things that I have done that I feel such shame about, and the things that I have done that I don't feel shame about, and I should. And your sin, by the way, as well, takes the moral guilt for all of that, and places it upon the conscience of Christ. And for the very first moment, suddenly now, the one who, for eternity past, in an exalted place, the angel sung about his holiness over and over again, who never, ever sinned, never thought about it, never inclined to it, always totally opposed to sin, 
This pure, spotless Lamb of God, the Holy Lamb of God, suddenly now, in a moment, goes from being pure and holy to being sin and feeling conscientiously and psychologically in his inner being the crushing weight of the sins of the world and your guilt was in it. And so was mine. That was the real agony on the cross. Because what the Father did is he cursed the Son. He condemned him. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So not only did the the Jews reject Jesus and say crucify him, and not only did his disciples run away on him, and not only did one of his own guys betray him, but now even God the Father rejects him, curses him, which elicits out of Jesus' mouth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you feel then in that moment, the, and we can't even begin to understand it, but a little bit, the agony of soul that Christ experienced from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock as he bore the guilt for the sins of the world, a devastating, massive, moral guilt. How low did Jesus go? He went lower than any human being ever can. He descended into abject agony and misery. And that is why the sky drew black at three o'clock, at noon until three. And he died crying out, it is finished. A final moment and then death in total weakness. So the third word in the biography is crucified. And the result of that crucifixion was death. Now, when you read biographies, normally when you get to this point, it's, you're, you know you're pretty much near the end, right? When the main character of the biography has died, I mean, you can look and see how much paper there is left in the book, but you kind of know that you're in, at the end of the story. They may reflect upon what his life meant or her life meant, something like that. But it's pretty much done. Because when the, when the guy is dead, the story is, it's over. That's it, Right? Now, I forget, why are we here today? Oh, wait. There's more to this story, isn't there? Indeed, there is. The Bible goes on to talk about, in fact, here's what Paul writes. Let me say it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now, how do you exalt a dead man? You know, the pharaohs would build the pyramids and Lenin's been under glass on, on display in Russia since 1924. And he's not looking so good, frankly. So those means are not working whatsoever. What does the Father do to exalt the Son? Well, here's the story, friends. Jesus dies at 3 o'clock. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, Mary's own mother, a few other people, they take his body down from the cross. They take it to a nearby grave. They, they prepare it for burial. And by 6 o'clock, they have buried him. And that large stone is rolled in front of the tomb. That's Friday night. Friday night passes. Sen- uh, Saturday morning comes. Saturday morning passes. Saturday passes. Saturday night comes. Saturday night passes. Sunday morning 
comes. And at first light, on that very first Easter morning, here is what God did from Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and and, uh, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he, <clears throat> where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I love that line. With fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, and by the way, when you see women running through town, you know something's going on, don't you? When was the last time you saw a group of women, other than the runners in the morning, running through town? I means something's going on, indeed. They ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Which I also think is a great moment in the story. Here he is resurrected from the dead. The hope of glory, all the things, all of mankind's hope, this one defining most important moment in all of human history. His very first appearance, and he says, hey. (laughs) And they came up. And they did what was absolutely appropriate. They took hold of him and they worshipped him. And in the story of Jesus, in these five words, yes, he was crucified. Yes, he died. But that was not the end of the story. For this one, this Christ who died, to show that the Father had accepted his sacrifice And with power that God only has, that Easter morning, he reaches down into that cold tomb and that cold body and exerts the power of God and raises Christ back from the dead. So that there was a moment when he was dead and there was a moment when he was alive. And he rose and he walked out of that tomb alive again. The resurrection was step one of this final exaltation of Christ. And the story goes on that he appeared to the disciples. And you know the story. He was beginning to appear to various disciples, two guys on the road to Emmaus. He appears to them. He appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to the other women. Everyone's coming back to the upper room saying, we've seen him alive. Have you seen him? No, I haven't. What did you see? We saw him alive too. And all of a sudden, I don't, won't read the text, but all of a sudden, boom, there he is in the upper room with them. See, it is me. And they can't hardly believe it. They weren't expecting it, which actually argues for the fact that it happened. And he says, come and touch, feel, see, it's me. Anybody got something to eat? Let me eat this thing. What do I have to do to show you that I was dead and now I am alive? Come and see, come and touch. And he did this for 40 days. Multiple appearances until he ascended to heaven 
And when he got there, God the Father received him and gave him a name that is above every name and placed him upon the highest place, his own right hand. He ascended to heaven. He was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is there right now. And by the way, he's coming back. He's coming back. And Paul ends now with the rest of the story of Jesus when he says that there is a coming moment that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. That is describing a coming day when every human being that has ever lived, and that includes you, we're all going to be there. And they are going to declare the name of Jesus, the highest, most exalted name. And it says that every knee that has ever had a knee will bow in homage and in honor to Him. And that we will shout out, Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think it'll be a chant, Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know what, Bethel Church, let's be the first ones down, all right, on the knee. And we probably shouldn't be competitive in a moment like that, but let's go for that, okay? (laughs) Let's lead everyone else down, and let's start the chant for him. And his glory. He is our Savior. He has accomplished this. He has done this. And that day is coming. And you're going to be there. In fact, one way to look at this whole story is to realize we either bow now or we bow later because eventually we all bow before him as king. And that's the story of Jesus. Five words. Exalted, humbled, crucified, raised, exalted again. So that at the end, we're right back where we started. Only now he has a higher name. The higher name that is Jesus. The highest name. We're magically having sound come out. Alan, help me out. If you would, please. Thank you. I would sing the tune, but I didn't recognize it. All right. Now, so what? Okay, let's talk about the so what. And remember, I said to you, I have a goal. I want everybody to leave here knowing the story of Jesus and knowing how this can change your story. Again, we're all living a story. I said my story, home, call, ministry, marriage. You've got your own story that you're living. Those words that describe the course and the direction of your life and the resurrection the meanings of this are are so massive it means that god was with us it means that it means that uh this world matters it means that we matter that our lives matter and what happens to us when we die matters to god in fact all if if jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead then nothing matters and if he was resurrected from the dead then everything matters That's next Easter's message right there. I like that. Indeed, it's true. And your life matters. And you can think about your life. Words that you would have to describe it. And there are words that we would like to use. Maybe words like uh, 
family, maybe uh, career, love, success, admired, beautiful, healthy. All those words sound good, right? Well, here's the thing, is that our words about our life don't really matter so much. It's what God has to say about our life that matters. And he has the same thing to say about all of us. Here's what God says about us. Image bearer, sinner, lost, dying, judgment, eternity. Now, we all have little iterations of that. Some of us do this and do that, and we have our own. But you know what? We're all the same in that, aren't we? And that is God's statement about all of us. And this is where, this is where the resurrection of Christ and his story can transform your story. Here's how. Because Jesus has his own words for his life. How about hero, conqueror, redeemer? Savior, life changer, and I'll give you another one, promise giver. Jesus made promises. And again, if he wasn't resurrected from the dead, who gives a rip what the guy said? But if he was resurrected from the dead, then everything that he said is true and can be trusted. And what did Jesus say? He said things like this. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. These are all things that Jesus said and promised. And if he was resurrected from the dead... All of those are true, which means then that if I believe in Christ, that that promise becomes true for me. And the fruit of that then is that the words of my life get changed. They get transformed so that I, in God's eyes, was a sinner, but now I am forgiven. I was dying, but now I have eternal life. I was under his wrath, but now I have his love. I was his enemy, but now I am his child. And my eternity was going to be hell, but now it is going to be heaven and the new earth. And Christ, he changes our words. Do you see that? And he can change the words of your life as well. How? What do I have to do for that? That sounds wonderful. You don't do anything. Christ has done it. Salvation is not something we do and merit and earn. It is something that we receive by faith. And in that receiving by faith, we see the old life that we live. We don't want that anymore. We turn from that as best we can. And now I become a follower of Jesus. My life has changed. And you look at Peter. You look at Paul who wrote this. Look at Mary Magdalene. Look at all the people. Their lives changed. 
and the stories in our church, I could go right down the rows of these, of these seats right here and say, tell your story. Tell your story. You heard Amanda's story earlier in the service. That transformation, that can come by faith if you will believe. And as best I can, I'm standing here. If we were in the commons, we'd be talking. As best I can from this spot, I urge you in love to trust in the one who loved you and who left that point of exaltation, that position of all glory and humbled himself and took on flesh and lived amongst us a perfect life and was crucified and died, was buried and on Easter morning was resurrected as God the Father exalted him once again to the highest place. That story will change your story and it will change your destiny, friends. And that's what makes this so important. Your life matters. Your eternity matters. Don't throw it away. Allow God to change it. Believe and trust in Christ. You can be saved today. What better day, frankly, than to say, you know what? I've been kind of standing on the threshold here. I've been checking it out. I've been thinking about it. It's Easter morning. What better day to put your faith in Christ than the day we celebrate his resurrection from the dead? And to pass over that threshold and to settle the matter, yes, indeed, I believe. I believe in Christ. He is now my Savior and my Lord. Don't you think that'd be a happy day for you? Don't you think that'd be a happy day for, uh, for Christ and God and the angels? Indeed it would. And for me as well. So, has Jesus changed your words? Has he changed your life? And just to conclude with a note of praise. Praise him who left all of that to come here. And someday we're going to see him back at that place of exaltation. And we will bow in praise. All glory to him. All glory to Christ. Amen.